way and the modern way. Traditional cultures say that you are your duties, right? In traditional cultures, people don't really sit around and go, who am I? You just don't do that. Uh, the reason that you don't do that is because the answer is given to you from the very beginning. That is, traditional cultures say, I'll tell you who you are. Those cultures say, you're in our family. You're our people. You see, therefore, your duties, the, one, the things that are assigned to you, are, are what you are. That's kind of the typical honor culture, right? Um, you, have to, you have honor as a man or a woman or as a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a leader or a follower. These are the things you do and they're honorable things to do. But if you look under the surface of that, what it means is that you have a spot in the group. You have a place in a community, and that place in the community defines your identity. If you're not within that community, that community of honor, then you really have no self. Your position in the traditional view of self is kind of there in what you do, in who your family was. That's why the family name was Smith or Baker, right? Because your family baked bread or they were metalsmiths. Your identity was tied with your functional place in the community. The other view of our identity and how we determine ourselves is actually a reaction to that view, that traditional view. There are a lot of good reasons why it's a reaction against it. The, the modern approach saw that traditional approach as oppressive. Like, what does the person do who says, I don't like metal? I, I don't like horses. I'm allergic to them. Or the bread maker. What, what, what does the baker say to, to, when, when they've got kind of an allergy to wheat? They're stuck. Their identity is tied up with their job. They've got no options. It's who they are. There's no variety, no life. It's oppressive, right? And so we came up with a whole different approach, this kind of modern approach of who I am. If the traditional approach says you are your duties, the modern answer is you are your dreams. You are whoever you want to be. You're free to find out what you want to do. You're free to decide what you want to live for. You're free to decide what your identity is and to change that identity. You go and discover it. You go and find it out. It's all about well, being who I want to be. Now, I think it's actually a helpful move from that traditional view. But I wouldn't say we're far happier than the generation that had that traditional view of themselves, would you? Would you say that society today is lacking in kind of, well, that we're any less confused? Would you say that we don't have the anxiety that the previous generation have? I'd actually say we're far less happier than they were. We don't have the same problems they did, but... We're far more anxious. We're far less happy. What am I going to do with my life? The questions I have are, are, are more and greater. I, I chop and change jobs. I, I don't know what I, who I'm going to be or what I'm going to do. And there's these whole questions about well, trying to work out who I am. And I think here is the reason why. When you look at the traditional culture... You think oppression, right? Forced identity. It's kind of a slavery. I'm enslaved to my family heritage. But when you look at our modern tradition, well, it's a slavery too. Trying to find ourselves in our work, a slavery to find out who I am. I mean, how do I know if I count, if I have a purpose? 
I don't know if I have value. I don't know if I have worth unless I find one of those dreams, unless I fulfill who I want to be. Doesn't sound like freedom to me, does it? I think that sounds like slavery as well. I just find both these approaches to who we are too fragile, too kind of like, how can I be sure? How can I live? How can I know what to do in life? And I think what we see today is that the Bible gives us a far better view of how we view ourselves. I think one of the clearest answers to this fragile approach to who I am is found in a place that you wouldn't have thought. It's found on a fishing boat in the first century AD. It's profound and it comes not by looking at myself, but by viewing myself in relation to someone else. What I want to put to you today is the only way you can see yourself clearly is by seeing Jesus clearly. And that it's a far better way to live than the kind of traditional or modern approaches to identity. Let's have a look at the Bible. Luke chapter 5 verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Master, Simon replied, We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now Simon's job, right, this guy we meet, is a fisherman. It's probably how he made his living. It's probably what his dad did and his dad's dad and his dad's dad's dad. They were, they were fishermen. This was their trade. This is who he was. But when he meets Jesus, the son of a carpenter, his identity dramatically changes. And that's what happens when you come in contact with greatness. Your identity changes. Jesus starts telling Simon what to do. You can imagine it. The son of a carpenter telling the son of a fisherman where to fish? (laughs) You you wouldn't think that Simon would be loving the whole bit of advice. We've been out all night. I've been doing this every day. You know how to make tables. I know how to provide fish. What are you saying to me? But Simon had actually met Jesus before. Not quite as close, but he, he, he had an encounter with Jesus. We saw last week that Jesus heals Simon's mother in law. She was sick with a flu and just at, 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 the, at, the, at the words of his voice, the flu leaves her. Luke tells us Jesus rebuked the flu and it left. Now, believe it or not, healing your mother-in-law is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Mother-in-laws are great. Praise God for mother-in-laws, even though at times they can be hard. Peter loved his mother-in-law and he loved the fact that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So when a few days later, Jesus tells Simon to go fish, that's what he does. Despite his better judgment, we've been out all night. We're tired. Do you know how hard it is to fish, to put a net out and and, and to kind of let it drag around and to pull it back in and then to find nothing and to do that repeatedly all night long? Do you know how tired we are, Jesus? Do you know how long we just spent mending our nets, making sure they're all right for the next day's catch so that we can live? Do Do you realize this? But despite that, based on what he'd seen of Jesus, he said, okay, 
They drop their nets and come back with a catch of their lives. The catch of their lives. And the first point for us to note here is that seeing the identity of Jesus, meeting this one who is great, seeing him for who he really is, makes people want to listen. It makes people want to listen. Have you ever met someone truly amazing? Have you ever seen someone who can do things just so well? You want to know how they do it. Here, Peter is just overwhelmed. He wants to listen to him. He wants to follow him. He's amazing. right? Who needs a fish finder when you've got Jesus? If that's your job, this is brilliant. You can just go out and say, right, Jesus, tell me where to put it down. And off we go. Like, this is, this is fantastic. But not only can he find fish, he heals the sick. He has power over evil. He has power over nature. It's no wonder people flocked to hear him speak. Now, I don't know what your view of Jesus is. Um, some of you here will, will see him as a good teacher. Some of you here will see him as maybe a person from history. But the thing that we see throughout history is that people did flock to this man. He made an impact on, on society. He made an impact on the world. People called him a miracle worker. People said he was a prophet. And what Luke says, I don't know if you noticed, is that he actually spoke God's word. Have a look at verse 1. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus, to what? To hear God's word. See that slip in? People came to hear Jesus, and when they heard him speak, they heard God. If this is true, Jesus is amazing. I mean, it's a big claim, but hey, he backs it up, doesn't he? Have you ever seen anyone say, that's where to fish? Have you ever seen anyone say, get better, and they do? Have you ever seen anyone cast out evil demons? Have you? Jesus is amazing. But put yourself in Simon's shoes for a moment. He's the fisherman. That's who he is, remember. He's the one who's good at finding fish. He's the one who's been doing it for, for generations, for centuries. How would you feel if after a night fishing, some son of a carpenter rocked up and said, that's where you need to fish? <laughs> and then there was all these fish there. Have you ever had that experience of being in the presence of greatness? Of being around someone who is just so much better than you? It happened to me at our last church. Uh, ever since I was a teenager, uh, there were two preachers that I, that I loved to listen to. Two guys uh, by the name of Bryson Smith and Ray Galea. These two guys were like the best preachers that I'd heard across all of Australia. And I, I thought, wow, I wish I could preach like them. I wish I could speak in a way that would capture people's hearts and, and, and push them to, to know Jesus. So when I first started theological college... I emailed uh, Ray, because Bryson lived kind of eight hours away from where we were. I emailed Ray Galea and said, hey, can I at some point in the next four years be trained by you? <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to get in early. I want to ask him for, for in two years' time, can I do the last two years of my college training under you? And, and so I emailed him. I set up an interview, and I can remember going to the interview. Right? I was sweating. It's ridiculous. But I was like, oh, this is this great guy, this great preacher. And I was keen. I wanted to hear how he did it. I, wa I wanted to get close to see how you could speak in such a helpful way. Well, eventually Ray said yes, and I ended up being a student minister for him. And then he asked me to come and work for him for two years as the assistant minister in his church. But what I found was that when I got close to him, well, he made me look 
like a pale reflection of a preacher compared to him. Right When I got up to preach, it was after he'd preached. And, and I was comparing myself to someone who's probably Australia's best preacher, who had 30 years of experience. Every time I got up to try and talk, I felt like, man, I shouldn't be here. Get him. I'm, I'm hopeless at this. You should hear the guy who's way better than me. I felt weighed. I felt measured. I felt, well, like I wanted to run. I actually didn't want to preach. Because I'm like, you're far better off. The church is far better off hearing this guy than me. It kind of made me see me for who I was as a preacher. Now, as a side, I've got to say there's something wrong with that view. I'm not condoning that view of kind of lifting up preachers. Uh, It's not really the quality of the preacher that matters, right? Uh, It's the work of God through the Word, by the Spirit that convicts people. So as long as you're clear and faithful, God can work and bring people to know Him. But what this showed me was that I was getting my identity from what I did. And when I came up close to someone who I really wanted to learn from and who I loved, who was so much better than me, well, it made me look like the chalk compared to the cheese. It made me look like a pale reflection. I thought I was a good preacher until I got close to greatness. But it doesn't just happen with preaching, does it? People who are incredibly beautiful physically, incredibly brilliant intellectually, incredibly skilled in some way, how do you respond? They bring up these kind of deeply confusing feelings. Not only are they attractive, not only do you want to get close to them, but when you do get close, they make you feel awful because we compare ourselves. Because they show us what we're like compared to them. They show our weaknesses. They show our flaws. Just imagine what it would look like to stand next to the God of the universe. To meet the one who made you, who spoke with a word and creation came into being. Imagine how you'd feel about you. Standing next to greatness gives us a firm punch in the face of reality. And that's exactly what happens with Simon. In verse 8, have a look with me. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. You'd think he'd want him on his side as the fish finder of all time, but when he gets close, he shows Simon for who he really is. See, getting close to Jesus actually gives you a worse view of yourself. Getting close to Jesus gives you a worse view of yourself. The brilliance of Jesus shows up the dirtiness of Simon. Before meeting Jesus, he'd seen Jesus' power and authority, but now he wants to run away. He he actually wants Jesus to run away. He's like, get away. Just go. It changed Simon's identity. If you look carefully in this verse, for the first time, Luke calls Simon, Simon Peter. Why is that? He changes his name. He'd always been Simon. And you know what? From this point on, from chapter 6 on, he's always called Peter. Luke is showing us here that something is going on with this guy called Simon. And it's at this point. Because right here, he's called Simon Peter. It's the bridge of the two names. It's the bridge of his identity. It's the bridge of working out who he really is. As you come to Jesus, he redefines who you are. He lets you see you for who you really are. 
Peter no longer saw himself, or Simon no longer saw himself, in relation to his job or his dream, but in relation to Jesus. And he cowered. For when you see Jesus for his amazingness, he shows up the reality of our ugliness before him. Luke teaches us something else here as well. To get near to God is a very, very unpleasant experience. I don't know if you've ever been into the card shop and you want to buy someone a card. There's a religious section there for people who are religious. And often you can, you can find cards that are like, you know, draw near to God. I can guarantee you the picture on the front cover of that card will be some pastel, right, of Jesus with a lion and a lamb. And it'll be like, just come and everything's nice and warm and fluffy and come near to God and everything will be so great. But the picture of the Bible is anyone who actually gets near to God finds themselves in deep water. In deep trouble. Anybody who gets near to the real God, the biblical God, the historical God, falls into a a tremendous and dire situation. There's pain. Sometimes there's wounding. There's hurt. For he shows us who we really are. I mean, look at Job in the Old Testament. He gets near to God. He actually has an experience of the presence of God. And what does he say? 42 verse 6, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, a prophet, gets near to God in Isaiah 6. When he actually sees part of the glory of God, he falls down. He's like, I feel like I'm I'm coming apart. Psychologically, he's he's absolutely destroyed. He's a mess. He's a heap. (laughs) Moses says, Lord, I want to see you. I want to be near you. I want to be with you. And what does God say? You see me, I'll kill you. You won't exist. See, when you see God for who he really is, then who we are gets shown up for who we really are. If you've got a view of God that goes, you know, I feel close to God when I'm on a lake in a boat, looking at nature, or when I come to church and I feel like I'm in in the presence of a church, you know, I don't need to read the Bible. I just feel near to God when I'm with people, when I'm with others, when I'm helping people. That's when I feel near, near to God. That's God to me. If you feel warm and comfy near your God, the God as, as you view him, and then it's not the real God. It's not the God that Simon Peter met that day. It's not the God that, that Job met, that, that Moses met, that Isaiah met. For that God is a consuming fire. It's some cooked up imaginary substitute that will let you get away with thinking that, well, it's okay. I'm all right. How can you get into the presence of infinite power without having to throw away the desperate illusion that we all hold on to, that we're somehow in control of our lives? We're not in control of our lives. When you stand next to Jesus, who commands the fish and they go into the nets, who commands sickness and it leaves, who commands evil spirits, who commands the one who upholds all things, how can you think that you're in control? How can I think I'm in control of even my own life? How can you get into the presence of absolute love without having to throw away the illusion that, well, I'm not selfish. I'm not proud. I'm a good person. (laughs) When have I laid down my life for someone else? While they hated me. No, standing next to Jesus, seeing him for who he really is, 
gives us a far more realistic view of ourselves than we'd like to have. It shows us up for our ugliness, our sinfulness. When you get near to the real God, it's like a storm on a lake. It kind of stirs up the junk from the bottom of your life and shows your life to be what it really is. No matter how highly you think of yourself or how lowly, we're even worse when we're put up next to Jesus. We're like a solar-powered garden light. You know those little ones that you put in the driveway that kind of light up sometimes if there's been any sun and they provide that really dim glow for when you're driving your driveway so you don't crash at night? We're like that. And Jesus is like the sun. Huge, amazing light that lights the universe, that's seen across the universe, that provides all light. And even the tiny little bit of light we think we have as that little solar-powered garden light comes from Him. When you see Jesus for who He really is, He gives you a, a clear picture of the reality of our state before God. And that might be new to you. That might, that might sound like, well, that's pretty harsh. I'm not that bad. But I know for me, as I look at my life, I can't do the stuff He can do. I can't control the things He can control. I haven't lived the way He's lived. I haven't served God Jesus gives us a real view of ourselves that we need forgiveness. We need help. But it doesn't end there. If you're following along in your outline, point three, seeing Jesus for who he really is gives us a far better view of ourselves at the same time. So at the very moment, Simon says, I'm a sinner. You shouldn't have anything to do with me. Get away from me, Jesus. The very person who's making him feel worse than he has ever felt before affirms him more deeply than he's ever been affirmed. The one who is great, the one who makes him feel like, I am such a shameful person, I'm so far different from you, loves him. Have a look at verse 10. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people. Don't be afraid. Follow me. Don't be afraid to be close to me. Don't be afraid. Although I show you up for who you really are, with me, you don't need to be afraid. (laughs) Jesus invites Simon to follow him. Now, he's not just saying, oh, do you want to sign up for a few courses with me on the weekend, right? That's not what he's saying. He, He wants Simon to live with him. To, to be his closest friend, to be his family, to be amongst him. He wants to kind of say, I want to make my home here with you. <laughs> After who I am, you want, to, you want to do this? When Jesus comes into your life and you see him for who he really is, you see yourself as more wicked and sinful than you ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, at the very same moment, you hear his call to come, to let him stay Despite your moral ugliness, knowing fully how sinful and repulsive we are to him, he loves you. He cares for you more than you ever dared imagine. See, if we come to Jesus and we see ourselves in relation to him, if we take him at his word, if we accept his offer, then I have 
an identity, a new identity, like Simon Peter. An identity that's not the type of delusion that so often we kind of trick ourselves with. The delusion that says, it's all right, I think I've got life together. I'm doing a pretty good job. We're not doing a good job. I'm not even who I want to be, let alone who God wants me to be. We don't have to sit under this illusion that pretends I'm okay because as I come to Jesus, he calls me for who I am. But he doesn't leave me there. He doesn't leave me on my own. He moves in and shows me, in fact, how amazingly I'm loved. Not because of anything I can do. Not because of any contribution I can make. Because of any way I can make him feel. But because he decided to. He loves me because he chose to. Despite who I am. Despite my ugliness. Despite how totally inferior I am to him. He chooses to love us. Do you see how amazing that is? If you look at love in our world, the kind of way that we act, you know, you think about those who are wanting to get engaged or engaged and thinking about being married, they're doing all the good stuff, right? Here's the tip, you know, you, you, want, you want to get married, then you've got to act in a positive way towards the person that you love, so they'll love you. That, that's what we do. We, we kind of do good things, we bring flowers, we kind of say really nice things. It's, it's great. And then once we get married, we're kind of like, great, they're in. Now I don't have to act that way anymore, right? Because their love was dependent on my love for them, and so now I've won, I'm sorted. That doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all, but that's, that's kind of the way that we view our, ourselves, I've got to put on this front that I've got life together, that that I'm okay, that I am who I say I am when I'm not. Jesus lets us view us for who we really are. No deception, no lies. But he lets us view ourselves far, far, far greater than we actually are. That's what we call grace. It's a gift. It's got nothing to do with us. It's, it's God's love for us. The undeserved gift of God to choose to come near to someone who looks like I do and you do. And that's what Jesus has done. He's done it to Peter and it's what he's modeling here. And it gives us a far, far, far better way than a traditional way to view ourselves, than, than a modern way to view ourselves, a way that's, that's based on who my parents were and, and on the duties that I do. It's far because I'm not that anymore. I don't have to compare myself to others who can do the task better. And, and, and the modern one, I don't have to have the best dream. I don't have to fulfill the best dream. I can't. There's always going to be someone better than me. Even if you're the second top, still compared to Jesus, it's miles away. Now, it gives me a far better way to view myself because it's not based on my achievements. I can never be superior to anyone. The only way that you can actually have equality is in relationship to Jesus. Because otherwise, your identity is based on, am I better than that person? What if someone comes along who's better than me? You've got every cause for superiority if your identity is based on what you do because you're better or you're worse. Inferiority comes in all the time. The, the best way to, to live, to view ourselves, is actually to see ourselves in relation to Jesus. Because we're freed from who we are And we're free to live the way he wants us. To see that our identity is tied up not in what I do, but in his love for me. See, that's what this new identity does. It frees us to live without fear. Now look at the response of Simon. After he's seen Jesus for who he really is. 
Now it's in 5 verse 11. I think, wow, look at that. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Really? Why did they leave? Why did these fishermen, that's who they were, remember? Why did they, they leave? What did they leave on the shore? What did they leave? Was it just their nets? Was it just the catch? And as, you, as I thought about this, this is probably the greatest catch Simon has ever had or ever will have. Right? Two boatloads full. They're not little tiny dinghies. They're kind of about 26 feet, they say. So long. Uh, about um, five feet. Well, they're full of fish. This is big for these guys. This, on that beach that day, they left not only their job, not only their career, not only their identity, but the possibility of economic success, the possibility of fame among fishermen, to have the best story anyone has ever seen. Have you seen how big our catch was? There was more money, more fame, and more prestige on that beach that day than they'd ever seen in their life. And they walk away from it all because of Jesus. See, seeing yourself in relation to him frees you from having to worry about who you are or what you do or where your security comes from. Seeing Jesus for who he is doesn't just affect kind of your private life. It affects every part of your life, every part of, of what's going on. It becomes the most important thing. It actually defines you. And that leads to freedom. When your identity is found in Jesus, well, you can walk away from anything, can't you? You can walk away from whatever it is because there is nothing greater than being in Him, being loved by Him. The future that He offers is in Him and it's all been offered to you. You don't need your dreams to be fulfilled. You don't need to be the best at your job. You've been invited to become a family member of the greatest family the world has ever seen. You've been invited to be the prince and the princess, the heir of creation. Because of, well, not because of how good you are, because of nothing we've done, but because of the amazing love of Jesus. And we don't have to pretend that we're good enough for him, that we're okay. He sees us for who we are, but he loves us anyway. Irrespective of what you've done, of what you've said, of how good you think you are, of how evil you think you are. When your identity is bound up with Jesus, you find true freedom. Simon sees Jesus and his identity is changed. Literally, he goes from Simon to being Peter. The salvation of Jesus, when it comes into your life, it totally reconstructs your personality. It transforms the priorities of your life in every area. Your identity no longer is what I've got to offer, but what I've been offered. To come to, to belong to, to know the utterly astonishing and powerful God. And to know His love has got absolutely nothing to do with you. Oh, it's like the weight lifts off my shoulders. He loves me because He loves me. Friends, don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for a view of yourself that's consistently clawing to get its way back. 
trying to kind of be good enough for yourself, be good enough for those around you. Don't settle for fear, for falsehood. Will I make it? Am I going to be who I want to be? Come to Jesus. That view is delusional. It's enslavement. But Jesus, he liberates you from yourself, from your self-centered identity. When my identity is in him, I'm free from insecurity. Do you see that? Do you see how amazing it is to find who we are, not in what I have to offer, but in what Jesus has offered? It allows me at the same time to say I'm utterly insufficient, but unimaginably valued by God. Sorry about the lights. Someone wants to fix it. It's just the connection on that light. Um, well, what does that mean for us? It reorients everything. It changes the way I think about my marriage. Or maybe just leave them. There you go. The crazy week this week. Um, it changed the way I view marriage, right? I don't marry someone so I will be loved. I marry them because, well, Jesus has loved me and frees me up to be able to love them without worrying about whether I'm being loved enough. Wow, to be in a marriage like that. It's what we strive for, but where it doesn't depend on what I do, but, well, I love them because of Jesus. Or my work. Why do I work at work for my boss? I mean, if I'm only doing it for my reputation, for my career, it's all about take, take, take. It's all about clawing your way through people. Yet, if I work at my work to serve Jesus, to find my identity in that I've already been saved, I already have my, my, who I am, I don't need to prove myself, then I'm free to be able to work hard. To not, to not base who I am on my failings or my successes. It frees you to be a great employee or friendships. You know, to, to be a friend even when someone else hasn't been a friend to you. It's hard, isn't it? It's frustrating. You feel like sometimes you, you're there and, and, and you're like, oh, I, I want to care for my friends, but I just don't feel love for them. I just don't feel loved by them, sorry. But getting my identity in Christ doesn't need, mean I need their love. Oh, it's great, don't get me wrong. But it means that I can serve them and care for them because, well, I'm complete. I've been given everything in Jesus. I've been called a child of God. I've been allowed to come close to greatness, to see how ugly I am and how much I don't do everything perfectly, yet still be loved by God. Changes the way I think about friendships and my life. It gives me purpose. What am I here for? To work? No. To, to, to build my career, my identity, to, to say, look at me. When the lights turn on and we stand next to Jesus, the look at me is very poor. No, it allows me to have purpose. It frees me to serve him. Not because I must, not because I'm trying to achieve my future, but because my future's already been achieved, I'm free to tell people about Jesus. To free them from this frustration of self-identity. It frees me to reorient my life around Jesus. It frees me to speak to not worry about what my friend will say if they reject me. It doesn't matter. Jesus loves me. My identity is bound up in him. Oh, I'm going to do it carefully because I love them and I care for them. I'm going to do it um, compellingly. But so what? So what if they end up going, 
oh, I think you're crazy. Is my identity so bound up in their view of me over God's view of me? No, we're free from that. Free from worrying about what others think of us. Free to be loved by the one who sees us for who we really are. So Jesus says to Simon, from now on, you'll be catching men. Humanity, mankind, rescuing people for life is what the Greek's kind of saying. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you someone who is so captivated by what Jesus has done for you, what I have done for you, that you can't help but speak of the amazingness of Jesus. That you don't worry about what others say, that you go into the world and you proclaim Jesus. And this Simon becomes Peter. Sure, he has ups and downs. Sure, he denies Jesus three times at the cross. But if you look in John 21, have a look later, there's another account that looks very similar to this. Peter's in a boat. Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And, and uh, Peter's in the boat and he hears his voice call out from the shore. He sees that it's Jesus. Now he recognizes what Jesus has done. He's faced the penalty for Peter. He's died in his place. He's risen again. And what does Peter do? Does he cower? No. This time, at this great catch, Peter throws his clothes off and he runs in the water and he swims to Jesus. When you see Jesus for who he really is and what he's done on the cross, you run to him. And you live a life that's freed from worrying about what others think, what others say, about your performance. Who cares? It doesn't matter. God sees us deep down. Stop pretending. Stop pretending that we've got it together. We don't. I'm a sinner and I fail. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly. And neither are you. Yet I'm loved by God. He's died for me. He's paid the price for the things that I've done, for the rebellion that I've had, for the ugliness that I've faced God in. Jesus has paid the price. It's finished. It frees me to run. A few years ago, a woman came to a friend of mine's church. Um, my friend kind of asked this lady, she wasn't a Christian, you know, what, what brought you along to church? And she told this most amazing story. See, she'd been in a, a high-pressure TV job, uh, in a network, working for television, and she made a mistake that made the network look pretty bad. She made a mistake in her job that she shouldn't have made, a mistake that should have cost her her job, a mistake that cost the network a lot. She should have been out. But what happened was her boss went to the board of the network and her boss said to the network, it actually wasn't her fault. Yes, she did it, but I've given her too much authority. I haven't given her enough training. Uh, I'd put her in the position too soon and that the blame laid with him. He took the blame. He took the blame for her mistake. And that boss had been there a long time. He was loved by the network. He had a lot of social capital in the network. He was well-liked. And so when he went to the board and he took the blame, well, his social capital took a hit. They were pretty unimpressed that he'd put someone in the place who could make the network look like such a fool. But he didn't lose his job. And neither did the woman. She was amazed. This is a true story, right? She was amazed She'd had a number of bosses throughout her life that would shift the blame to her, that would put her in the poo whenever they did something wrong, but never a boss that would say, I'll take the blame for you. It perplexed her. It made her go, why would he do this? So she went to him and she said, look, I, I, I'm so thankful for what you've done. 
But I can't work out why you do it. I can't work out why you would let your career take such a hit. That now you probably won't get that next promotion. That, well, I don't know why you would do that. Why would you risk your job, your reputation and your career for me? He said, well, it's fine. It's just don't, don't worry about it. He tried to push her away. But she kept pushing him and pushing him. And finally he said, it's because I'm a Christian. She was like, what's that got to do with anything? Like, so what? And he said, well, every other religion in the world, God comes and tells you to do things. He tells you how to perform and what to do. But the Jesus of history, the Jesus who who died for me, comes and says, not you need to do this, not you need to perform, but that I've done it for you. Jesus took the blame for me, so I'm free to take the blame for others. His identity wasn't tied up in his performance, in his career step, but on Jesus' work on the cross. His security wasn't tied up in his career, but in God who gave everything for him. And what mattered most for him was how he lived his life that others might see this God who had given them everything. That's what it means to be a fisher of men. It's not just to go out and kind of say six points about what Jesus did, although you can learn helpful kind of outlines of the gospel. It's not just to say Jesus is Lord and then move on. It's to live a life that is very different. A life that's transformed by what Jesus has done. That doesn't rely on what I do. That my identity is found in him. So much so that I can throw it all away. I can walk away from everything. And still be totally secure. That's what God is calling us to do today. Whether you've come to Jesus or not, I hope you've seen that he shows us up for who he really is, who we really are. But he also offers us life, forgiveness, hope, a way to live that's just not so caught up with who I am and what others think about me. Give it up. And come to him. Give up this self-focused identity and call it for what it is, broken. And come and live life in such a way that people see you're living for someone else. Imagine if we live like that at work, at school, at university, amongst our family and our friends. Imagine if we didn't care what others viewed us as, but we cared what Jesus viewed us as. And when people come to us and they ask us, Why do you do this? Why do you live this way? Why are you different? You can say, well, Jesus did it all for me. Jesus died so that I can be free to love you. Come and see Jesus. Come and live your life. See yourself in relationship to who he is and be free. Let's pray that we do exactly that. Father God, this morning we've seen the amazingness of coming close to you. Of coming close to your son and seeing how much we need to say we are sorry. How much we don't love you as we should. We don't live up to our own expectations, let alone yours. But at the same time, Lord, we are so thankful that the creator of the universe, the one who sees us for who we really are, would love us. 
Father, help us to view our lives in a way that there is nothing that holds us too strongly that we won't walk away from it. Help us to put Jesus first, to live for him because we're loved by him. Help us to love our friends, our family, our spouses, uh, the people around us in a way that doesn't depend on what we get, but on what you have given us. Lord, may we live lives that are so transformed by the gospel and by who we are because of Jesus, that people flock to come and see you. We ask you would use us to be fishers of humanity. Amen.